Welcome to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Welcome back, devotees. I'm here this week with Heather from Nature vs. Narcissism. Hey, I ruined everything. <laughs> this is round two. <laughs> it's not, like I said, I don't record every day, just every night. <laughs> I should know how to operate my equipment, but sometimes I don't. I should mention we're a little slap happy already because we went on an adventure. <sighs> Courtney's <laughs> endeavor to get a new phone, which your husband was so delightfully helpful in trying to help us because I got mansplained yesterday, almost punched a dude in the face in a sprint store. And Jason's like, I'll go with you. <laughs> Mainly, one of us would have punched someone in the face. I almost punched our new friend. Don't, I mean, he's going to listen to this too, and now I feel bad now. But I, w- I, I did get a little bitchy with him at first, so I we feel bad both about that. Got, we all got bitchy with him at some point. Well, because we were pissed off, because the one guy tells us they shouldn't have any issues. It says, here you go, you know, have fun, which none of these people want to hear this shit. But regardless, we met a new friend. Yeah, we went to Sprint, we went to Verizon, <laughs> and we met a true crime lover who now knows what a podcast is, subscribed to all of our podcasts, and yeah. is going to listen in his car. And tell us all about the murder things in his family and his town. Yeah, Portsmouth, Ohio. Who knew? Actually, I think I did a crime near Portsmouth. I think you did, yeah. It was a historical crime, though. Yeah. Uh, So you knew. So why are you asking? I didn't know there were a lot of recent ones. It's really interesting, though. He was, like, really getting hyped up talking to us about it, which is cool, because most people shy away from true crime. And he was all like, what? You guys do that, like, for a living? Like, this is awesome. <laughs> yes, for a living. I wish. I'm, I want to make it my job. I just got to get better at it. Um, and then we also had our first... <laughs> and then we also had our first uh, true crime class this yes. week with JT Townsend. It's basically the brick of murders over four weeks. It's basically the best thing that's ever been invented ever. Yeah. And we're going to just give a little brief teaser the plan is to figure out how to pressure the county to reopen the case. Mm-hmm. Get new sets of eyes on it and everything. Theories, yeah. petitions, whatever it takes. So Heather and I are going to record some episodes for Patreon on this. And I think for Patreon, I will probably end up publishing on there at least my notes mm-hmm. from the class, which Heather is jealous of my cute electric blue notebook. I am. It's I'm like going a to get a new one. Because I got a spiral because I thought we were just, like, in regular school again. So I just did the regular college-ruled spiral notebook, and she comes to class with this bomb-ass book that has a bookmark in it already. And elastic wraparound, too. So I'm going to Walmart tomorrow on my lunch break and buying a $2.50 book (laughs) and rewriting all my notes. That was my happiest point when I realized it was $2.50. Well, it was my happiest point when I realized, fuck, I gotta rewrite this. I don't know. Your notes were beautiful. No, I was really scrunching on that one page, though, in the top corner. I was like, oh, I've got so much paper. I could turn the page, but mm, don't want to. Okay. So <laughs> I actually picked my case because I was going to do something different, but I changed my case after that class and heard one of the cases you didn't really know a lot about. 
Do you want to guess? I'm so excited. No. <gasps> Wait. The Domo family? Is no. Oh, no, no, no. You, you're doing the Shepherd case. No. What the fuck? I am going to do the Shepherd case eventually. It's going to come up, but I want to have more okay. time. No, don't say it. I have my notes. <laughs> By the way, Heather... Shut the fuck up. Heather has a nature versus narcissism tote. And I love it. It's so Justin much. makes fun of me. Yeah, I did send a picture to him so to tell him that I would make fun of you for it. It's not nice. <laughs> it's not. What did he say? It was the. What did he say? The word was. <laughs> what did he call me? I don't. Vanity. It was a, like a vanity thing. Is that what he said? I guess. Like what the fuck, Justin? I just want to carry my things. It was originally meant to carry my stickers and my pins and stuff. So if, for when we go to Chicago and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But then I got excited, and I'm like, I can carry all my research stuff in here. That's fair. Come on. We'll just have to make fun of him for something else. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so... It's one of the cases we talked about. Dennis and Evelyn Coby? No. All right. Patty Rewalds? No. It's a bi- It's one of the biggie ones. Andre Poole? Uh-uh. It was- Sophia Bear? No. Francis Brady? No. Oh, one of the big ones. Oh, the ones that I wanted to... Oh, okay, so his fall class... Um, the Lindbergh case? Yeah. Yes. Why didn't you say one of the big ones? <laughs> kind of known. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm doing that class in the fall. We're going to, I don't know if I'll be here. Excuse me? In Cincinnati. I don't know what's happening after August. That's when my contract's up. So we're going to have to talk after this recording because you didn't tell me this. I have a possibility of saying, but <laughs> Heather is very upset now. <laughs> I'm sorry I get into people's lives and then I have to move again. Actually, my lease is not up till November. All right, so you'll be there. For most part, yeah. <laughs> I have to afford that up somehow. Yeah, we're going to talk about the Lindbergh baby. What do you know about Charles Lindbergh? Not much. <laughs> I know that the whole kidnapping um, charge and stuff like that, like across the state lines and stuff, mm-hmm. it's called the Lindbergh Law because of this case. I know that. Yes. Like that part of the history of it. Um, the actual case itself and Charles Lindbergh, like I've never once read into it. I just know it because it's, oh, the Lindbergh baby. Oh, the Lindbergh case. That's mm-hmm. what I know about it. That's it. I've never looked into it. So Charles Lindbergh is famous for doing the first transatlantic fight flight. So okay. he's famous for his aviation. He was a, like an international hero for that. And that's how he got famous. He married a socialite and there's a really great Nola, uh, Nova. Uh, documentary, not NOLA. That's a, that's a city. <laughs> that's in New Orleans. NOVA is a, a federal, I think it's federal agency. Um, I'm sorry. I'm tired. No, you're fine. National. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It is a federal. Let me double check for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it is what I thought it was at the beginning. It's um, it's like a national organization. It almost looks like it's like a publication, like a station type thing. Um, so it's like PBS. It's part, yeah, part of PBS. Okay. Yeah. Alright, so, uh, yeah, so I watched a Nova, aka PBS, documentary <laughs> on Case of the Lindbergh Baby with John Douglas, nice. aka Mindhunter, <laughs> aka Awesome. So, yeah, so if you're interested in one seeing Mindhunter going over and like going to the actual Lindbergh house, watch it. It's on YouTube. It's not on PBS anymore, but give PBS all your money. <laughs> all of it. Well, most of it. I mean, you need to live comfortably, but give them money. They do amazing things. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so Lindbergh, known for flying around the world, he got his money because his what he married slash trained his wife into f- to fly, and she was an heiress. Nice. Her name was Alice. And so their 
they were married. They had a little boy, um, Charles Lindbergh Jr. You have this basically international figure, mm-hmm. and they have their cute little blonde son. Uh, did I mention Charles Lindbergh is a fan of uh, eugenics and the whole Nazi perfect gene ideal? What? Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. He he loved the Nazis for that reason. So Charles Lindbergh goes into my unofficial assholes of history. I was just going to say your asshole bag. <laughs> no, it's the unofficial assholes of history. Um, people you would think, oh, these are such great people. But you're no. like, but wait. But wait, there's more. So if you, you call now. <laughs> if you call now, you get a book on how they're an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it is going to be twenty nine ninety nine. So was he okay? So he, you said that he would fly internationally. He was with a socialite, and she was an heiress. So yeah, that's he, where he got most of his money from. Yes. Okay. So and he taught her how to fly. So they flew like they were known for like being really famous early aviation people. Okay. So Charles Lindbergh, most known for his, being the first person to fly across the Atlantic, really big proponent in eugenics. Do you need a crash course? On eugenics. Okay, that made me sound really stupid, but yes. No, it's it's a <laughs> like very, I, I hear it a lot from basically you, um, and maybe one other person, but I've I, never really yeah. delved into it. I just want to make sure you understand. Like it's not of and because if you don't understand, then listeners don't understand. And let's just say it's the listeners who don't understand, and not me. No, that sounded mean. Let's just say it's me. It's it's for, it's for anyone who doesn't understand okay. eugenics, which is a weird, and I'm going to do very, very brief. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it was a science developed in the mid-1800s, where it started with kind of like phrenology, which is the measuring of your skull. Oh, shit, I do know this. Okay, cool. Go ahead. To Continue. determine, like, it was racially based, and it, that was a part mm-hmm. of eugenics, where it's a racial-based science. Mm-hmm. And... It was how <laughs> oppression would happen because they were saying, well, because you're this race, this is like, you're not a pure race, da 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 da. Yep. And it had begun to pick up steam, especially with imperialism and colonialism with the race for Africa by the European nations around the same period of time and of Asia. So they needed to justify taking over some of these civilizations and populations that had a complex his- written history. Or had, um, like, technological advances and all this. So it was really a form of justification in the form of science. Mm-hmm. And we still see some, it's not eugenics today, but you still see some use of science to justify certain things that people are like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. But that was really big, so, and we see the Nazis using it to a very extreme yeah. base, basis in the concentration camps and such. But Lindbergh was a component of this. He believed that he was part of the pure race, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, yes. tall man. Well, their Lindberghs are building a new... Uh, so the Lindberghs in the 30s, like 1932, are building a new house in Hopewell, New Jersey. So they're building their dream home, mm-hmm. dream mansion. Just picture it. You know, HGTV... In the 1930s, during yeah. the Depression. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like a rad time to start building a house. <laughs> you have plenty of cheap labor. True, I guess. And if you're a socialite with and an heiress to some fortune, I guess that works in your favor. So not everyone lost money, like lost their money in the Depression. Yeah. People like the Kennedys and other people who saw the bubble coming, mm-hmm. pull, like slowly started pulling their funds out to not preemptively cause it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if Lindbergh's family was one of those who foresaw the Depression okay. and just pulled everything out. 
But this seems like they at least had some foresight to have stashed away money, not all in the stock market. Which, I mean, the Kennedy's case on that is insane <laughs> in the membrane. It's terrified to cover the Kennedys a little bit. They could take That's why out. I want to take the fall class so I can get, like, a crash course on it. Mm. Okay. So, on the night of March 1st, 1932, the Lindbergh family was relaxing in their Hopewell, New Jersey home that's half-built. And as we talked about on Thursday... I was just going to say, <laughs> this is the part that I do know about the yeah. case. Um, they had been working on this house. So, they had decided to stay overnight. This wasn't planned, which makes this all very suspicious. Mucho curioso. <laughs> Don't think that was grammatically correct. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I'm a female. It's fine. <laughs> Heather's been supplying me with shots. Don't worry about it. They have like, to relax. They look like they're in test tubes. They do. I mean, it's medicine. Um, <laughs> Charles Lindbergh Jr. was in his crib while the rest of the household is downstairs doing their business, you know. Around 10 o'clock, the nanny goes up to check on the baby. And, you know, he's not there, which is not great for her job. You, your one job, watch children. There That's is no suspicious. child. Yeah. And how old is the baby at this point, though? Like two. Okay, so it should be in a crib. Yeah, he's in like a crib. really get out of the bed very easily. No. Um, and so she immediately alerts everyone. They begin to search. And they inform the police, which I seem, assume means phones were newer. Mm-hmm. And if they're building your house, I don't know if the phone would be there. So someone probably had to run out and get the cops. Which, this seems a little hard, you know, to call in an emergency or have an emergency and you have to go and find the police. Right? Well, I mean, that's normally how it was before. You had, like, set areas where the police would be. Yeah, okay. So that's why... So, like, not one station for the entire area. There would be, like, different... There'd be smaller stations. Yeah. And that's why, like, Doctor Who, they had the phone box, the police phone box, because they would have a a phone so you could call the police, because not everyone had one. Also, you can put criminals in there, so if someone's, like, a robber and you catch him, you can lock him in there until the police... Citizens arrest. Until the police come. Mm Mm-hmm. Stay in here, bad guy. Yeah. Uh, They figured out that the kidnapper or kidnappers took young Charlie in his room between nine and 10. So that's an hour window mm-hmm. to take a baby from a house full of people. Right. How many, and how many people were there? Was the nanny, the mom, the dad, and then the contractors Prob- or just, or pro- well, probably not the contractors, but like their servants oh, and true. such. Okay. Cause they're, they're, right. they have servants. Um, they also found a note asking for $50,000 in ransom money on the windowsill in the room. And hence. And hence. Oh my god. <laughs> Another uh, case. <laughs> so the police arrived to conduct their investigation and they found several clues. Let's go through those. Mud on the floor of Charlie's room, presumably from the kidnapper's shoes. Cause think about the n- people coming in and out of the room right. would come in through the house. Mm-hmm. Through the door, yeah. Yeah, the other doors. And there's a rug and they, their shoes probably wouldn't be muddy. Right. But if you're coming through a window, mud. Of course. Uh, they find outside a broken three-piece homemade ladder, extension ladder. So not a well-built if it was broken. I was gonna say, like, it seems very dangerous. The side rails of the middle section were split, suggesting the ladder had broke as the kidnapper descended. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. The baby. That tracks. They also discovered a chisel and two sets of footprints leading away from the house in a southeasterly direction towards the presumably tracks of the getaway car. Um, interesting... The footprints were never measured. Like, none of this was measured. I mean, 
I have nothing for that. <laughs> you have to also think forensics is in its infancy, infancy now. Well, yes, but that seems like an early thing that you would do. Yeah, and the same token, that seems like one of the okay, this is the only thing we've got. Maybe mm. we should measure it. Maybe we should do something to be able to compare it to something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to, how else to word that, but. <laughs> um, there's also no indications that the kidnapper hurt Charlie inside the home. And they pr- the police proceed to interview the household workers and people close to Lindbergh family. Question. Hmm. Since I don't know anything about this case. So if a stranger comes and takes you away and you're a two-year-old kid, don't you think that you would cry, scream, kick, make some type of noise? Somebody would hear you if somebody was taking you? I think it depends. Like, what if he's really asleep? So, I mean, how how hard do kids sleep, though? Like, I mean, I've seen, I, I guess I, okay. If this dude, lady, whoever, comes mm-hmm. through the window and picks this baby up, dead sleep, okay, maybe he's still asleep, maybe he moves a little bit. But as you're descending down the ladder that eventually breaks, mm-hmm. don't you think that type of commotion is going to wake the child and he's going to scream or make some type of noise? What if they drugged him? All right, well, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's a fair yeah, question. No, it is, it is. Trust right. me, uh, a lot of people have a lot of questions about this case, mm-hmm. and most and of these people are dead now, so we can't ask them. And I've never heard any details about this case, so I'm, like, really questioning mm-hmm. it. <laughs> so, really, all they have to go on um, is the ransom note and then the subsequ- sub <laughs> subsequential. No, that's not right. Subsequential? Subsequential? Subsequential. <laughs> Twelve <laughs> ransom notes. Excuse me? Well, remember, you can't call. Like, they're probably not going to call. Well, yeah, but 12 ransom notes? <laughs> you know, maybe he's a prolific letter writer, and I'm going to go with he because the suspect that they find is a he, but, you know, maybe they love writing. Is it a nice handwriting, at least? No. Oh. Uh, on top of it, Charles Lindbergh, being Charles Lindbergh, decides that he wants to head the investigation. And because... In his plane? <laughs> um... And he, uh, being Charles Lindbergh, gets to do that. He informed Colonel H. Norman Schwarzkopf, head of the New Jersey State Police, that he wants to be in charge, and he is let to be in charge. That doesn't make any sense. First of all, huh, conflict of interest. Second of all, he's not even a police officer. Third of all, all he does is fly planes. How is this okay? He's rich. How is this okay? He's rich. Again, how is this okay? He's rich. 1930s, and he's rich. This is so insane. They're like, well, all right, we really didn't have the manpower anyway. You just handle your own case, bro. What? <laughs> um, no, he was in charge of the police. Like, that's the best part, is he's like, no, I'm in charge now. He's the captain now. <laughs> okay, so he, he didn't just want to be in charge of the investigation. He wanted to be in charge of the entire police force for this. Yeah, anyone who's working on it is under Charles Lindbergh. I thought you meant, like, he wanted to be the lead detective on it kind of thing. Well, he is, but I mean... Oh, my God, this yeah. guy. What a narcissist. Again, being Charles Lindbergh, which I think is now the title of this. What a narcissist. Um, so, there were no arrests to be made until the ransom was paid and the baby safely returned, which is kind of fair. Like, you see, like, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to pay with the baby back. Cool. Mm-hmm. The Lindberghs also went on television, or radio, sorry. Too early for television. <laughs> would have been very early. Only like four people would have had it. Um, yeah, but those four people may have made the difference. Oh, those four people may have. But they went on NBC radio promising to keep confidential any arrangements that would bring their baby back. Bring little Charlie back. On March 5th, 
So, only four days later, they received their first communication from the kidnappers since the baby was taken. It was a handwritten note mailed from Brooklyn. Of course, Brooklyn. I have nothing against Brooklyn, but we're going to go with it. Yep. The note said, quote, don't be afraid about the baby. Two ladies keeping care of it day and night, end quote. Two ladies keeping care of it day and night. Very dehumanizing yes, to the baby. Yes, yes. Granted, I always refer to babies as it until, like, they are born because it is an it. I mean, it's like a bean or, like... I mean, it's a call, living... That's what we call our niece now, bean. I mean, it's a living th- It's a living thing inside of you, but it's an it. Because you, you can't really see it. You, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, you, you, you can't put a face to it. Yeah. Yeah. And and in case, say, something happens, it kind of, I don't know, detaches you a little bit. Yeah. Like, this is our our little bean. which is our little nugget. Yeah. Um, The note also warned the Lindberghs to keep the police out of the, quote, case, misspelled C-A-C-E, and said that future notes would uh, tell them where to deliver the money, which is spelled M-O-N-Y. So there's misspellings in this. Yeah. So has a, probably a very low education, possibly. Yeah. Could be. Um, the, they need to go between, between the kidnappers. So the Lindbergh settled on two bootleggers who had volunteered. I'll drink to that. <laughs> bootleggers? Bootleggers? <laughs> Sounds like I'm trying to pronounce that one, um, presidential. Buttigieg? <laughs> Buttigieg? Every time I see it, I think it's saying but at me, and I'm just like, thank you. Buddhist. <laughs> um, so our good friend Al Capone called the kidnapping, quote, the most outrageous thing that I have ever heard of, end quote, and offered $10,000 for information leading to the return of the child. So everyone is, like, aware of this. Like, it, it is the Madeline McCann story of this period. I feel like I have to watch this now. Like, don't side do it. note, you don't want me to, but the more you say not to, I feel like I have to, so I know what the fuck's going on. You get to see Portugal and it's beautiful. <laughs> I think but, I'd rather just read about the case than watch yeah, the documentary. Yeah, I, I would say Bro Ohio did a good job covering it. Oh, they always do, though. Yeah. They make horrible jokes, but they still do a great job. And it, you don't have to watch it for eight hours. True. That's the one upside, because who has eight hours? <laughs> Courtney. I, I had a commitment before I started watching it, and I regretted it. Not the recording of right. it, because that was fun. Yeah. But the watching of the document. I drank a lot. <laughs> I, I'm not saying I drank a lot, but... But I drank a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I drink a decent amount. A healthy amount. As long as it keeps you going. So, in Bronx, an intelligent, patriotic, a bit overbearing 72-year-old retiree principal named Dr. John Condon, wrote a letter um, that ran in the Bronx Home News on March 8th, and he was offering $1,000 of his own money in addition to the ransom money provided by the Lindberghs. He promised he would go anywhere alone, give the kidnappers extra money, um, and never utter his name to any person. So basically, he's like, I'll be the in-between. Yeah, like, I'll be your little mediator. I will go and drop off the money, get the baby, and I won't say a word kind of thing. Yeah. Like, they just want the baby back. Yeah. Baby back, baby back. Oh, oh my god, that just went through my head and I felt like it was such a dark humor point that I couldn't do it. <laughs> god damn it. I'm just picturing Mike oh, Myers. Baby back, baby back, baby back. Oh, baby I'm just back. picturing Mike Myers from um, <laughs> Awesome <Cold> Powers. <laughs> okay. Um, the next day. Wow, that was speedy. Gordon uh, found in his mailbox a letter from the kidnappers asking him, quote, get 
the money from Mr. Limburg, end quote. So, and then oh. to w- await further instructions, as most of these notes are, are up to do. So, was money spelled the same way, M-O-N-Y? Yes, and get has two T's. I mean, get it. Get get So, Coden calls Lindbergh with word of his letter, and Lindbergh's like, come out, let's meet and discuss the response to this. He gave Coden toys and safety pins that he might help to identify the baby and authorized him to a place... Um, like a money-ready note in the New York American. Then, uh, at 8.30, March 12th, the doorbell rang at Corden's house. He was handed a letter by a man. The man explained um, that a man, there's a lot of men because we don't know who they are, Yeah. in a brown top coat and brown felt hat, has stopped his taxi and asked him to drive the letter to 2974 Decatur Avenue. Okay, so taxi drivers were basically like, bird message deliverers like are you thinking about carrier pigeons yes god damn it i could not think of the word but yes like so they were he was like stopping the cab giving them this letter being like hey take it here and that's hey it. here's 10 bucks take this letter gotcha because they're not going to do it without money because their whole job is to drive things around for money right normally they're people but letter sure that would be so skeptical to me like so sketch so fucking shit let me try again that would be so sketchy to me though if somebody flagged me down like Hey, here's ten bucks. Deliver this letter to such and such place. I'd be like, hmm, that's a little odd, buddy. Why aren't you getting in the cab with me? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I would take note of that person. Oh yeah, I mean, he said brown top coat, uh, brown felt hat, so he remembered some aspects. Right. Uh, the letter told Condon to take a car to a specific lo- ne- location near an empty hot dog stand, which sounds so sad. <laughs> Can you imagine an empty hot dog stand in New York? You're just like, oh no. Yeah. Someone's stolen all the hot dogs. <laughs> That's not the sad part I was thinking of. Someone took the hot dog man? Or they turned the hot dog man into hot dogs. This is turned into some Stephen King shit. Soylent Green is people, Heather. Soylent Green is people. What? Have you never seen that movie? What'd you say? Soylent Green. It's a movie from the 60s. Then no, I haven't seen that. There's a, like around, it's, it's an older movie. They go to the empty hot dog stand where hopefully the hot dog man has not been turned into hot dogs, where he might find a note under a stone. Where he might find one. (laughs) Telling him where he should go next. This is a terrible scavenger hunt. I like it. This is the most high stakes, worst set up scavenger hunt. Yeah. And he was told to be at the location within three, uh, like three quarters of an hour. An hour is spelled H O. U-E-R. Within three quarters of an hour, so within 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, Condon found the note. It told him to, quote, follow the fence from the cemetery to the to the 233rd Street. I will meet you, end quote. So he go follows the instructions, and he finds a figure inside the cemetery deep in the shadows sig- signaling to him, which seems like how you get murdered. Oh, yeah. Murdering 101, for sure. Lure somebody into a dark cemetery. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's already dead people there. Maybe find a, a recent grave. Yep. You're good. Um, the man had a handkerchief over his nose and mouth, and he said, quote, Did you got it, my note? End quote, in a, a German accent. <laughs> Did you got it, my note? Yeah. <laughs> so he's German, so he's like an immigrant. Mm-hmm. He's like an immigrant, she says. He could be an immigrant, but he's like, uh, uh, English a is German his second. descent, yeah. English is his second language. Yeah. Basically. Which makes sense with the spelling errors. Yes. But that's why I was focusing on them. Because they're clues. <laughs> I have my magnifying glass. So I'm looking. <laughs> You're seeing eye dog, yes. 
Uh, he asked Condon about the money, and Condon replied, quote, I can't bring the money until I see the baby, end quote. Then he spotted another man outside the cemetery. The shadow figure was like, it's too dangerous, I'm out. Conan chased the man down, and they sat together on a bench. What? <laughs> what is this story? I know. So he's chasing me. I'm not going to sit down with him on a bench. He must have caught. Like, they don't say that he, like, they didn't have one of those boxes to hold the guy in for the police. He had to sit on a bench. <laughs> I mean, it's a cemetery. Just throw him in a mausoleum. Come on. That's not a bad idea. So he had managed to chase the man, and he told the man, who called himself John, that, hey, don't worry about it. Everyone's cool. We're all cool here. And this John guy, John is in quotes, um, probably should have been like, are you a cop? Because this seems like a thing a cop would seems say. Seems like a setup. Yeah. And the man basically expressed to Conan that he feared he might even burn. So, die, like, get killed for it. Mm. So, Conan um, was like, what do you mean by this? And the man said, quote, what if the baby is dead? Would I burn if the baby is dead? End quote. Oh, my God. So, Conan is like, um... Why would you ask to deliver the ransom if the baby's dead? Like, what's going right. on? The man then tells him, baby's not dead. Tell the colonel not to worry. The baby's all right. Which seems like he's subtly saying, no, the baby's dead. Yeah, baby died. Yeah. Um, and the man said, quote, tell Colonel Lindbergh the baby is on a boat, end quote. By himself? <sighs> well, no, with those two ladies. Remember, they said oh, they're the two ladies. Oh, the ladies, yeah. They're taking care of um, And... Conan's like, well, then take me to the baby. And the man's like, nope, I'm here too long. I gotta go. The chief conspirator will be mad. And they leave. This case is blowing my mind. (laughs) It's blown many people's minds. A few days later, Dr. Conan received a package containing a gray wool sleeping suit. Which, really, who puts a baby to sleep in wool? That just seems scratchy. Very scratchy and very hot. The baby would, like, overheat itself. Well, I guess it's March. I don't care. You sleep in your body temperature, like, well, I don't know. I sweat when I sleep. <laughs> Do not. So, um, but it was the suit that the Lindbergh baby was in in the night of his kidnap. So that was confirmed. <sighs> and but Lindbergh worried that the kidnappers were going to lose patience and do something. Was like, no, just pay. We'll pay the ransom on March thirty first, so the end of the month. The start at the beginning of the month. We're now at the end of the month. Kind of received a note from. John. And that was in quotation marks, but <laughs> really aggressive ones too. Very aggressive. Like uh demanding that the ransom money be ready by Saturday evening. IRS officials helped assemble ransom money using gold notes. Interestingly and smart by the IRS people. Within two years the country would be off the gold standard, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> oh let me tell you. Let me just tell you. The U.S. getting off the gold standard was a big to-do, but from the 1930s or 1830s uh, um, till we got off the gold standard, there was always a debate about going on the silver standard as well. I don't know what any of this means. So the gold standard means you're basing all your country's money behind how much gold they have. Oh, okay. Okay, never mind. So, so like, like a dollar would be like a... Yeah. So... There was an idea of putting it on the gold standard, <laughs> and there were a lot of, like, presidential, like, it was a presidential, like, campaign promise. It's like, we're going to go on the silver standard because there's more of it and whatnot. Yeah. Okay. It never went through because it's not a good idea. <laughs> Granted, I mean, having it based on something seems like a great idea, but right. there's only so much gold in the world. 
Just do, like, water. There's a lot of water in the world. But <laughs> let's do the water standard, guys. <laughs> um, right now, our money is currently... I don't know how to describe our current standard. <laughs> yeah. It is based on the strength of our economy. So when the economy goes down, the We're value fucked. <laughs> the value of the dollar goes down. That's why in countries like Zimbabwe and right now um Venezuela, their money is worth nothing. Hmm. So they're not using money because their money isn't worth anything because when the US goes off the gold standard, a lot of countries had their money based on the US. Oh shit. So if yeah. So if I travel to Venezuela right now, I get everything free? I mean, if you bring dollars, you can live large. That's why some countries... But have, what if I don't bring dollars? Do I have to show my tatas? So I would not big. recommend going to Venezuela right now because they don't have power or food or fuel. Really. So everybody's dying? Yeah. Did you not know this? I'm stuck in this first world country <laughs> looking at true crime every night. Yeah. I um, did not know there's a thing going on. I'll, I'll find some articles and send them to you. It's kind of sad. I don't want them. Yeah, no, it's been going on for about three years. I mean, I knew... Three, like, four years. Yeah. I knew, like, it wasn't the greatest, but I didn't know, like, that... It, it's, like, that bad. This is... This is an... Like, this would be another podcast. Yeah. Because <laughs> my international sure. study side would come out, which I'm thinking I'm going to do a deep dive on... One Latin American country's dirty war. We will have to discuss Venezuela at another time, though. I, I do. I love horrible things. And this is why I didn't study this for my master's. <laughs> I love horrible, terrible tragedies. I, I love studying them. Yeah. Because it's a human condition. Yeah. And it's yeah. at its most guttural and worst. Yep. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> um, but anyways. Yeah. John's. They're sending. <laughs> Let me make sure I'm okay. So th- the U.S. will be off the gold standard and the bills, um, round yellow seal. So they had a, a, basically a seal on the money with, on the gold standard that was going to be taken off after okay. we're not on the gold standard. So like, if anyone uses this, we're going to find them. Yeah. Using their noggin. Oh shit. So they delivered two boxes of containing the ransom money. And I just imagine like bankers boxes. Full right. Of money. Right. Like, Who's going to transport this? I would want to spend it. <laughs> right? Make it rain. Go on to the strip No, you quickly exchange it as fast as you possibly can. Come on. I'm not giving you tips. Well, on the way you were making it rain, I thought we were going to the club or something. Uh, then at 7.45 on Saturday evening, the doorbell rings again at Corden's house. Ding dong. <laughs> yes. I thought you needed a sound effect. I appreciate any sound effect. The, another taxi driver... Delivered a note telling Gordon to drive to a florist shop where he would find another note under a table outside the shop. Again with the scavenger hunt. I want to do a real life scavenger hunt, but like, this one just seems, ugh. But it's for a baby. That's what I mean, like. Too high risk for a scavenger hunt. Mm-hmm. There's a human life involved. So, Gordon, Gordon, I keep wanting to think of James Gordon, but Gordon, it was accompanied by a gun-toting Charles Lindbergh as they go to the location. Of course, because he's in charge of the investigation. He needs a gun. Yep. Uh, the note points them to another cemetery across the street from the floor shop. I think these are signs. You keep going to fucking cemeteries. I think that's telling us what's going to happen or what yeah, has why are we not go- Why are we not going to restaurants? Parks. Chipotle. Children's museums. <laughs> Chipotle. <laughs> Just really want Chipotle. Um... So Lindbergh's like, I'm gonna hang back here and like watch what hap- what goes down. 
because it's Charles fucking Lindbergh, and people know what he looks like. His picture's been in the paper so much. Right. Everyone's like, we know the Lindbergh baby's missing. Like, hear ye, hear ye. The Lindbergh baby's missing. I can't think of a third. (laughs) I can't. Stop giving me the test tube shots. Do you need another one? (laughs) No. (laughs) Heather's internally like, yes, give her more. Um... So I can buy a new pack of a different flavor. I know. They should have had mixed packs. We need to go back because Courtney needs more whiskey, but that's just another point. <laughs> Finish the bottle you gave me. Aww. And it was really sad. I kept the bottle, though, because I really like that whiskey. Um, someone recognized uh, Cundin, and it was John! Air quotes John! <laughs> that John. And he was like, hey, you got my money? Bitch, better have my money. Right? And he's like, yeah, the money's just in the car, but you need to tell me where the baby is. And John's like, I'll be back in about 10 minutes with the note that has the baby's precise location. Oh, it doesn't take you 10 minutes to write four words. Also, you could just speak it. You could have already said it. The baby is dead. (laughs) Those are the four words, aren't they? Uh, no. But that's where it feels like the cemeteries are leading to the baby is that's dead. That's what I mean. These fucking clues. Uh, so he hands John the $50,000 in return for an envelope said to contain the directions to a boat called Nellie where the Lindberghs were to find their baby. And the note said, quote, you will find the the boat between Horseneck Beach and Gay Head near Elizabeth Island. So the next Morning, Charles Lindbergh is in the air flying along the Atlantic coast looking for a 28-foot boat, Nellie. It was false. The area was searched several times, so they didn't find Nellie, the boat. (sighs) This is stressing me out so fucking bad. So then, in May May 12th, 1932, at 3.15, a truck driver named William Allen stops just north of the small village of Mount Rose, New Jersey, about two miles from the Lindbergh home, to use the woods for the restroom. Because, you know, truck so, stops aren't a thing. And also men just do that anyway. Yeah. You just whip it out wherever they want. About 75 feet off the road, he looked down to see a baby's head and foot <gasps> protruding from the ground. No, stop. Uh, seriously? Yeah. Don't laugh. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's so horrible. <laughs> also, I thought you knew the baby died. I knew the baby died, but fuck, I didn't know that's how he was found. <laughs> um... It was Charlie A. Lindbergh Jr. The hunt for the baby was over. Thank God that guy had to piss. Yeah. Uh, They later revealed that the baby was probably killed by a blow to the head, possibly from a fall coming down the ladder from the nursery. So they... So did John really just want a ransom? He wanted money, but then, oopsie, like, the ladder broke and now the baby's dead? We'll see. Oh, this case is stressing me out. How do you think everyone else felt? Terrible, apparently. Yes. Uh, so, the investigators continue to question one of Lindbergh's maids, maids, Violet Sharp, which sounds like a great name. I like it. Either sounds like a really high-class stripper, mm-hmm. or someone who's, like, going to be, like, a like a novelist, mm-hmm. and just love it. Violet Sharp really had been evasive in prior interviews. She told police that she'd been out with a man named Ernie Brinkett. Brinkert. Great names. Dude, that's like a detective name. Ernie Brinkert? It's Artie Brinker, and I'm drinking whiskey in my, like, Like, I literally office. just see, like, a little P.I. guy. This could be a noir. This is like, adorable. Like, those two could be a noir. There we go. Let's but make it. Violet is the, like, femme fatale, and Ernie <sighs> is 
I'm the so detective. excited right now. Can I'm we make so a into story? This. Yes. I'll have oh, someone yeah. else write it, though, because we don't have time. We have all the ideas. You guys, we just need a writer. Yeah. Um, so she had been out with Ernie on the night of March 1st, although and Ernie Miller came forward and earlier and had admitted that he and not Brinkett had dated Violet that night. So there's another Ernie. That's too, that's just too many Ernies. Like, that's not even a common name. I have an uncle named Ernie, but that's the only Ernie I've ever met in my entire life. But in that period, that was a common name. I well, thought. he's not, I think he's only like 50-something. I think it was more a more common name. Huh. So, Sharp's photo identification of Brinkett and the business cards of Brinkett found in Sharp's room caused police to consider him as a suspect, but he had a solid alibi for the night of kidnapping and his handwriting did not match the notes. Oh, good thing they did the handwriting analysis. Yes, there's a lot of that happening. Uh, Violet Sharp, ill and depressed over the death of the baby, really shaken by, like, inter-private, like, relationships, the police come to question her again, and she runs up to her room and commits suicide by drinking uh, cyanide chloride from a measured cup. So, like, silver polish. Or, like, silver cleaner. Yeah. But that causes speculation to think that she was in on it. <laughs> because she was so, like... Distraught. Probably. Either she's so distraught and, like, just having... Or she's, like, freaking out trying to figure out how am I going to keep this secret... Yeah, there's, there's, she's either so distraught and having mental health issues, having mental health issues, or cannot figure out how to deal with the secret she has to keep that right. she just commit, uh, complete suicide. So the police are keeping track of locations for most of 1932, 1933 of where the gold marked ransom notes appear. First, they're scattered all over the city, but then they slowly begin to concentrate in Upper Manhattan and a German speaking district of Yorkville. I just like that the German-speaking district is Yorkville. Mm-hmm. Because York. You know why New York's named New York? Mm-hmm. Um, when I feel like I should know these things. Like, I feel like I'm being tested for a podcast. No, no, no. It's just, I, I, these are the fun facts I have that aren't horrible. Um, <laughs> a lot of them are horrible. But, so, when the, it was, originally New York was called New Amsterdam. When the British purchased it from the Dutch, the Duke of York purchased it, and that's why it's called New York. Because... It was New York. Yeah, okay. And so Yorkville just seems funny because it's a very British kind of name. Then, November 27th, 1933, a cashier at Lowe's Theater remembers taking a gold note from a, for a movie from an average size big nose man who matched match Condon's description of John. So John re- reappears. God damn it, John. Go Air- home. <laughs> Probably is home. <laughs> then, ten months later, the head of teller of the Corn Exchange Bank in the Bronx came across a gold note with uh, 4U1314NY penciled in the margins. The teller informs investigators who assumes the note was for a license plate penciled in by a gas station attendant. Their assumption was presumed correct when the attendant of a Upper Manhattan service station, John Lyons, recalled the note came from an average-sized man with a German accent driving a blue Dodge. Fucking German John. He told the investigators he remarked upon the man as he gave him a gold note, and he asked, he was like, oh, you don't see many of these anymore, and he was like, no, I only have about a hundred left. Oh, my God. Yeah. And because it was so weird that he had the gold note, he wrote down the license plate. Yeah. And it's crazy to think that those were used to be license plate numbers, but... So they go to the New York Motor Vehicle Bureau, and they discover that 
The license plate belongs to Richard Hopman, a 35-year-old carpenter living in the Bronx. The next morning, after leaving his home in his blue Dodge, Hopman was arrested. His possession had a in his possession he had a twenty-five gold, twenty-five dollar gold note. So he had one of the notes in his possession. Twenty-five dollar, twenty dollar. Oh, okay. I was like, what? There was a twenty-five dollar bill. <laughs> this is neat. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> um, so they go to his house and search, and they uncover $1,830 in Lindbergh bills hidden behind a board and another 11930 in Lindbergh money and a shellac can sitting in a recess in the garage window, which I'm like, I like his hiding thought, like space thoughts. He's like, can behind a board. It's depression era thinking. Yeah. Gotta get clever. That's why if you ever get an old house, always search the walls. Yes. It's fun. For one and two, you might find shit. If you do find interesting stuff, please tell us. Yes, share it. We would like to know. So, um, they're like, hey, Hotman, what's up with this? And he's like, my friend Isadora Fish, a German friend who sailed for Germany the previous December and then later died of tuberculosis, <laughs> had left some of his belongings with him for safekeeping. Do you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> so Hoffman had discovered in Fish's belongings the gold notes, and he decided to spend it without telling his wife. You never do that. They know. They know, and also just, like, tell your wife, because it prevents fights later on. Because she's going to be like, why do you have all these notes? <laughs> they fingerprinted Hoffman. They put him in lineups. They made him do handwriting samples. And he's not talking. They investigated the Fish story and found it to be fishy. But, um, <laughs> on top of it, uh, the trim of a door in a baby's closet in the Hoffman's home, they noticed a smudge phone number written in pencil. It was Dr. Condon's phone number. In Hoffman's attic, they found a sawed-off board, and we'll get back to that. Oh, God. During interviews with Hoffman's neighbors, a picture of per- uh, emerged of him as a shy, hardworking, frugal carpenter. So, they built their case. September 24th, 1934. So, we're now, like, three years out. From this case. Two years out. I can't do math. It's hard. It's really hard. There's numbers and shit. Yeah, and you have to add and subtract and shit. Uh, Hoffman is put up before a New York magistrate to hear that he's accused of extorting $50,000 from Charles Lindbergh and would be held on $100,000 bail. Dude don't have $100,000! <laughs> it's the 1930s! Most people now don't have $100,000. I don't even know what that looks like. I'm assuming it would fill this room. Yeah. <laughs> Heather just got real happy thinking about that. That would be so fun. I was just like, Angel, like... Oh, I thought you were going to Scrooge McDuck this shit. Who what? Scrooge McDuck from DuckTales? No. Dive into the money? Yeah, but that's also on, um... Oh my god, what's that kid movie? Richie Rich. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Scrooge McDuck is older. Yeah. They just really like the old ones. <laughs> you like those silver foxes, don't you? not answering this. <laughs> so, you just did. <laughs> uh, two weeks later, in the Hunterton County Courthouse in Flemington, New Jersey, which sounds like the most New Jersey town, Flemington, New Jersey. And you just lost all of your New Jersey listeners. No, they make fun of themselves. It's cool. Okay. They don't pump their gas, so I'm not mad about it. I'd go to New Jersey. Oh, man, that's awesome. New Jersey did not pump my gas. It was great. Uh, 23... 
grand jurors unanimously uh, voted to indict Hopman on the murder of the Lindbergh baby. So, it's going to trial, y'all. Mm-hmm. Going to trial. You can indict a ham sandwich, though. Just remember that. And New York agreed to extradite Hopman to stand trial in New Jersey, too. Okay. So, this is all going according to their plans. The prosecutor's plan. <laughs> the trial was set for January 2nd, 1935. So now on the third year since the baby has been missing. The baby. Your the whole, baby. Your whole voice changed when you started that sentence. <laughs> oh, those test tube shots hit real hard. Do you need another? <laughs> no, stop this. <laughs> Heather and the, te- the journey with the test tube shots. If we do a shot contest thing again, we can do test tube shots. Yes. Uh, by New Year's Day, Flemington overflowed with 700 reporters, thousands of people, and hundreds of communication technicians. So, people came to see this shit. Holy shit, dude. That's a lot. Think of OJ trial right. level shit without TV. Yeah, so that's what I was thinking. Like, if you wanted to look at it at the that type of level, like when TVs and, and news stations started making like covering mm-hmm. stuff like that. The Ted Bundy trial was the first one where it was like, you know, broadcast across all these platforms, yeah. all these different news stations that like that kind of level, but without the TV, I guess. It's yeah. Crazy. So you had to be there. Yeah. So just to know true crime always been popular. <sighs> I know people act like it hasn't. So we're not fucking crazy. Dateline just celebrated what? 25 years. Something like that. I mean, I, I grew up watching fucking John Walsh and America's Most Wanted and different shit like that. Like, yeah. I love that shit. So we also have celebrities such as, and let me know if you know them, Walter Winchell, Arthur Brisbane, mm-hmm. Damon Runyon, and Jack Benny coming to see the trial. He's him and the second guy, Brisbane or whatever. <laughs> Vendors hawked miniature ladder, kidnap ladders, locks of the Lindbergh baby's hair, and photographs of Charles Lindbergh. So really, repeat that. Vendors? Yeah. So think of Ted Bundy, like the Burn Bundy Bird shirts. Oh my or God. during um, the Bobbitt trial. Yeah. And all of that, yeah. We've always been horrible as a population. I know. We're just trying to reflect on it more now. <laughs> well, I mean, you can because there's more ways to showcase it. You know, yeah. there's so much technology, so many ways to film every single second. So it just seems like it's just now becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. At 10 o'clock that day, Judge Thomas Trenchard, who was 71 year old, years old, a well-respected judge, took a seat on the bench. Uh, Bruno Hopman, followed by a state trooper, probably to protect his ass, uh, took a seat next to his lawyer, Edward J. Riley, a hard-drinking man known as, quote, the Bull of Brooklyn, end quote. Love it. Bull of Brooklyn. Let's go. Of course, Charles Lindbergh is there, because he's got to be in the middle of all this shit. Yeah. And he sits it's next- It's his investigation, of course. He probably had his magnifying glass, his Sherlock Holmes deer stalker. I'm sorry, I just want to punch him in the face. I don't know why. He just seems like an asshole. He's a Nazi. He lost his kid, which is unfortunate. But uh, Yeah. But then again, he's still a Nazi. Yeah. And he's greeted by the prosecutor, David Wench- the Attorney General of New Jersey. That's how big this case is. They got the Attorney fucking General for New Jersey to try this. That is insane. So, Judge Trenchard ordered the 48 names of prospective jurors. So, they're just selecting jurors, and there's this many people there. 
to be drawn from a box containing 150 names. And the trial is underway. They dinged a little bell, and they're like, let's go. Are you ready to rumble? No, it's, are you ready for a sham trial? <laughs> sham trial. Sorry. Justice! <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> you don't know how the this goes. You're under rock. I can tell by the way you're acting, but also I know it's like a huge case in U.S. history, so... It didn't go down how it was planned? Yeah. I mean, I knew that much. Like, I didn't know all the details leading Mm. up to it, though. I knew the whole, oh, got the baby out of the window, it was, we were staying in the house that night, we weren't Mm. supposed to, it was being constructed, whatever. I knew there were ransoms, Mm. all that stuff, and I knew the trial didn't go according to plan, but I didn't know all the little details in between. Yeah. So... Wentz outlines in his opening statements the prosecution's theory of the case. He describes how Hopman carrying a burlap bag, presumably containing the baby, would be containing the baby, um, climbed the ladder into the nursery. He w- went out the window when his ladder broke. He had more weight going down than when he was going up. We went so down. then now, now we're body shaming the two-year-old? Like, that's the reason the ladder broke? Or it wasn't built properly. But he's a <sighs> carpenter, so he should know how to build a fucking ladder. Also, the baby didn't weigh that much. It's a two-year-old. Fault. <laughs> um, so he went down with the child and commissioned the burglary. The ca- child was instantly killed when, like, fell. Hit, hit seven, yeah. yeah. So he continues on with his story. The jurors are so enraptured, and he closed, and he goes, we will be asking you to impose the death penalty. It is only suitable punishment for this case. So they're going hard. Yeah. And I can't remember when, but there's a certain period, we think between the 40s, in the 80s, where the death penalty is... 74 or 76, it came back. Yeah, it's deemed illegal for the whole country. Because mm-hmm. there was a lot of botched hangings yep. and such. And mind you, I don't know if I've discussed this, hanging is a very precise art. Yes, so you could, like, really hurt somebody and not kill them. You can pop off someone's head if it's too short. Mm-hmm. If it's too long, it's horrible. You have to get... I forget. I think I watch something on this? I don't know. I have. We're not going to go into my... Morbid sh- curiosity. Continue with that. <laughs> I feel like people are just calling me like, I'm concerned. <laughs> Is Courtney okay? Does she need to talk to somebody? <laughs> I need to stop watching documentaries about things in your house that kill you. Really is what it is. Yeah, there's a lot of things that could kill us. Don't but worry. Just think about Final Destination movies. Like, the most random fucking things. So I just live my life because if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Uh, it is what it is. So, they begin by calling Ann Lindbergh to the stand, and she relates what happens that night. Wentz heads, hands her her baby's clothing, and is like, yes, this is what little Charlie was wearing on the night. And, actually, surprisingly, Riley, for the defense, doesn't cross-examine her. He says, the defense feels that the grief of Mrs. Lindbergh needs no cross-examination. So, like, we're she's in mourning for the loss of her child. We're not going to deal with it. Then they go to Betty Gow, the Scottish maid, who was the last person to see young Charlie alive on the fourth day of the trial. I, I've cut out a lot. There's a lot in there. And you can look up everyone's testimonies and all that. But we're trying to keep this to an hour. So they she... That already. <laughs> there is some shenanigans in the middle of this. Yeah. But she identifies the sleeveless shirt, undershirt that she had made for the baby, found on the corpse, and how she had been ide- the one to identify the baby at the corpse. Riley, who cross-examined Gao, basically was like, you and your friends were accomplices to this crime. Like, 
shows her photographs of the Purple Gang, the notorious Detroit gang, and asks her if she knew any of them. She said that she did not. Ends up fainting during the cross-examination, and they have to revive her. We go to the eighth day of the trial. Colonel Norman Schwarzk was quizzed on the handwriting specimens. He shows the two that Hopman voluntarily gave, and there was a total of 45 specimens, including the 15 ransom notes, the nine re- automobile registration applications in Hoffman's handwriting. So. What? So many cases. Whoa. I'm so lost. Nine automobile registrations in his in his handwriting. Mm-hmm. So they got some extra ones to, like, p- compare. So he had nine cars? Yeah, I think registration was a little different. You might have had to do it every year. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I was like, okay, so is he like a car dealer? What am I missing? Okay. No, he's gotcha. a carpenter, not a car dealer. That's what I thought. He's a carpenter like Jesus. Moving <sighs> <laughs> on. So, <laughs> there's a series of document examiners, handwriting specimens, you know. The whole we, nine. Oh, the most famous one was John Tyrell, who also testified for the prosecution in the Leo Ben Lode trial. If you have listened to Fatalities, Dr. Elisa Lucas covers that case from Chicago around the same period. Loeb and, um... Leopold. Yes. Okay, yes. Based on a true crime, covered it, too. Mm-hmm. Leopold and Loeb, yep. Yeah. So I'm not going to cover it here. And everyone is like, yes. He and Rit. <laughs> you just said yes with A's and S's. <laughs> like, all of the S's. Uh, and all I pictures was your little bitmoji queen. My bitmoji yes. is a queen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they basically have said that Hotman has written these notes. Riley told the press afterwards he would produce eight handwriting experts of his own to show that Hotman was not the man to write these notes, but only one eventually would take the stand. On top of that, they have the county physician, Dr. Charles Mitchell, who performed the autopsy and testified to the baby's skull fracture. He told the jury, quote, the blow that caused the fracture was struck prior to the death of the child, end quote. Uh, Hotman sits there white-faced and frozen as he hears the doctor's testimony, and Lindbergh sat with his shoulders bow for the first time, showing any physical, like, upsetness during the trial. Trial. The real testimony concerning Hotman's passing of gold notes from the ransom money, why it's called his last witness, a balding 74-year-old Xylotomus, a wood expert. Use that now in your Scrabble dictionary words. Xylotomus? Yeah. Is that the name? That's the, the term for it. Wood expert. Oh, wow. Xylotomus. Mm-hmm. I like it. That's the name of our noir. There we go. It's called Xylotomus with Detective Awesome Sauce Brinkley. What was it? Ernie. 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 I have to scroll up and look for it. It was Arnie something and Violet something. Arnie. At this point, I might as well just go. (laughs) With Violet Sharp and Ernest, uh, Ernest Brinkert. Ernest Brinkert and Violet Sharp and R. Xylotomus. You are. I love it. I have to find where it was. (laughs) Um, Okay. Uh, So the Xylotomus from Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, shout out to Jessamine! Uh, Arthur Kohler. Kohler identified the board of the kidnap ladder as coming from the lum- a lumber store in the Bronx, and given the location and the number of nail holes in the grain of the wood, Kohler argued that the board must have at one time 
been joined to the boards found in Bruno Hotman's attic. Hmm. So, and that's the end of the state's case. Repeat that last part, though. So, because of the location, like, the way the board was cut, okay. the shape of the nail holes and the grain of the wood, mm-hmm. the board would have been one at one time joined to the boards found in Hotman's attic. So basically, he had taken pieces of the His boards, attic boards and made the ladder. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. He thought he was sneaky. I mean, that is pretty clever. Damn. They presented a total of 162 witnesses. That's a lot of witnesses for a crime that took four years to solve. Yeah, from... Or go to trial. Yeah, from the state side. So, now we have Riley's turn. He is throwing out there that the crime was a conspiracy involving Condon, Fish, and Sharp, among others. So we got a big old conspiracy. Yep. I just love that this is the start of the conspiracy theories on this one. Mm -hmm. He theorized the ladder was planted near the Lindbergh house by a clever, disloyal worker to throw the police off the track of an inside job. Oh, boy. Sharp stole a child, then committed suicide when she realized the net was closing in. Wentz followed with a five-hour summary of the evidence against Hotman, who he called the lowest animal in the animal kingdom and public enemy number one of this world. Of the world. Of the world. Hmm. So, Wines concluded telling the jury the defendant is, quote, either the filthiest vile snake that ever crawled through the grass or he's entitled to an acquittal, end quote. So, you know, it's, it's black or white. Right, yeah, there's no there's, in between. Yeah. After giving the final instructions, Judge Trenchard set the jury out to begin deliberations at 1121 on February 13th. By 1028 that night, so they, almost 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, the court bell rung, signifying the jury had reached its decision. I just love that they were like, take your time. We'll bring you in snacks. Right. Yeah. Ring the bell when you're ready. Yeah. Well, they probably sent someone out and someone else ringing the bell, but right. still. Uh, a few minutes later, jury foreman Charles Walton stood with trembling hands to announce, we find the defendant, Bruno Richard Hopman, guilty of murder in the first degree. Uh, so, the judge told Hopman, the law, the sentence of the court is that you suffer death at a time and place in the manner specified by the law, end quote. So it was a 32-long-day trial, and it's done. So it only took about a month. Yeah. Which is still shorter than California trials. <laughs> right. Oops. Whenever I hear Sorry. getting off okay. cover California trials, I'm just like, oh. Right, it takes forever. It takes so long. I love their coverage, though. I, I love, love it. I love their coverage of it, but it takes, like, yeah, their, if you're their actually... trials are insane. Oh, my God, I couldn't do it. So... New Jersey appellate courts unanimously reject Hopman's appeal. And that question, you have to think, how much of it is just the publicity on this? This is the Lindbergh baby case. Yeah. like, And he asked the Board of Pardons to commute a sentence. The appeal was also rejected, this time by a 7-to-1 vote. His only supporter came from the New Jersey governor, Harold Hoffman, who believed that the kidnapping could not have been pulled off by one man. But... Under New Jersey law, he is not allowed to unilaterally commute his sentence. Hmm. So he wasn't able to save him, basically, because he, due to their laws. Mm-hmm. They tried to get him to confess, but it proved fruitless. Um, Sam Leowitz, the defense attorney in the Scarborough Boys case, visited Hoffman Cell three times trying to convince him to confess to avoid the electrical chair. So if he could- Trying to get Hoffman to confess to yeah. avoid the electric chair. So if he would have confessed, he would have just, what, life in prison? Yeah, they probably would have done life in prison because he's admitted he's showing, like, remorse. remorse like a type but... of remorse, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I did it, whatever. Yeah. 
So he did get Hoffman to speculate on how the crime would have been committed. He said the crime would have had to been committed by a gang of kidnappers, and the person who entered the room easily could have run down the inside stairs of the home and out the door. So he didn't need the ladder. But think about it, if you know where, like, the back doors are and stuff like that, you could get out. Right. Evidence in recent years strongly suggests at least two men were involved in the kidnapping and that Cemetery John was not, in fact, Hoffman. Cemetery John. That's what they call him now, yeah. <gasps> I uh, was calling him. What was I calling him? I think we were calling him air quotes, John. Yeah. Cemetery John's way better. Yeah. Uh... Newspaper, a newspaper even promised to give Hopman's widow, Anna, and their young son $75,000 if he would provide the paper with details of the kidnapping. He, to his dying day, insisted he was entirely innocent. At he eight, sat in prison this entire time? Yeah, every time like people came in, he said, I'm innocent. At 8.44 on April 3rd, 1936, so four years after the kidnapping. The New Jersey State Prison put 2,000 volts of electricity mm. through his body, and he was killed. And he never once confessed. No, he did not confess. Holy shit. Like you said, the kin- Lindbergh kidnapping led Congress to pass the Federal Kidnapping Act, also known as the Lindbergh Law. This act made uh, kidnapping a federal offense and allowed federal investigators uh, the authority to pursue kidnappers across state lines mm-hmm. and jur- jurisdictions. Very interesting. Love it. Love the law aspect of it. Yeah. So, most people don't believe that Hopman acted alone, or if he did, he was just a fall guy. Right. So, I'm asking you, do you think he even had any part of it? I think the theory I heard that's either he was one of the lower people in there and he just had the money, because they never found all the money. Mm-hmm. Like, the so he was like a scapegoat, you think? He was a scapegoat, or he extorted it from someone else, or someone was just keeping it in his house and like, hey, if you need some cash, grab it from here. But he doesn't seem clever enough to get it really? done. I think that is just a very, you have to know their schedule. If there's so yeah. many outside components. And it's. And did he even have any connection to this family? No. At all? Yeah, that's what I was no. thinking. So the NOLA Nova um, documentary goes into this too. Like, they kind of don't believe he did it or he did it alone. So, I mean, Hopman's evidence is quite compelling. But the evidence of him being a sole kidnapper is the more problematic point. If you think about it, it being a group is just makes so much more sense. Mm-hmm. Like, who's going to hold the ladder? Who's going to look out for people? And all of that. And <laughs> what's up, Luna? At this period of time, we have a lot of gang activity. Like, out west, we have the west, those gangs. We also have, um, like, mobs and that routinely kidnapping members of the rich and famous, like, their family members to supplement their incomes. Right. And Lindbergh, like I said, is was one of the most famous people at that point. So, and you knew he had a kid? Yeah. Uh, he doesn't have a criminal record. Hoffman doesn't have a criminal me- record in the U.S., but he did have a criminal record in Germany. And, you know, did he want to just take him out because he's the number one person? He's like, oh, I'm, like, struggling here and whatnot. But it doesn't seem like there's that obsession with Lindbergh anywhere, like any evidence of it. But remember how I said Lindbergh was a like a fan of eugenics and kind of like and then like the social, Nazi shit, yeah, and like social Darwinism. So he wants to be the perfect spe- specimen. Oh my god, no! I know this part of the case. Okay, go ahead. I'm excited now. <laughs> um, so 
his character kind of like he believes he has like the perfect genes and all of that and he actually had secret affairs starting in 1957 with women in Germany and, and having like secret kids to have these perfect German or Northern European kids. Mm-hmm. And there's evidence that little Charlie was not health, completely healthy. Yeah, he wasn't a perfect specimen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had downplayed the public had not been informed of his health and his physical condi- physical condition at the time of his abduction. You know, it appears he had rickety-like conditions, so, you know, his bones weren't as good. Um, he required mega doses of vitamin D and daily exposure to sunlight. So, uh, sunlap kept in his cribs. He also had a hammer toe on his left foot. A hammer toe? Uh, yeah. Big toes. Janky uh, toes. Like his, 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 janky toes. A too large cranium and unfused skull bones. Okay, so he already has issues in his skull, so, like, anything really could have killed him if it... If he hit his head on something. Yeah, I mean, when you're a child, you're it's more flexible. I know, but like a fall or whatever. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then you think about his father, who is very much wanting to be the ideal specimen, having the ideal specimen. And he was. The blonde hair, the... Smart, healthy, yeah. all of that. This kind of like raised suspicions, especially because Lindbergh took a direct charge of the investigation. Mm-hmm. He isolated his household staff, who may have had knowledge of his son's medical conditions, from questioning authorities, including Hoover and the FBI. Herbert Hoover? Yes. Her- J-, or J. Edgar Hoover. Not Herbert. Herbert was Her- the president. That's who I was thinking of. Oh, yeah. Okay, never mind. You're thinking of Edgar. So, that's weird. Just a little bit. And immediately following the autopsy, like a cursory autopsy, he ordered the body cremated and the ashes scattered. Yeah, I don't want anybody to be able to exhume the body and look for any additional evidence of anything health-related or otherwise. Yeah. So, there was a trend also of, hey, my kid isn't normal, and they just kind of would disappear. They'd be taken to, like, a home of a less famous person or a less wealthy person or taken to... It sucks, but that was what happened. So fucked. Yeah. Um, On top of the fact that... Like I said, Lindbergh wasn't supposed to be that. They weren't supposed to be there that night. And they, it was the first time Lindbergh inadvertently missed a public speaking engagement. He came home from New Jersey, or sorry, came home from New York City where he worked instead of going to a dinner where he was to speak. And who's really to say that, um, did he orchestrate his son's death or was it really an outside gang who just messed up? What do you think? I think it was him. It just seems like, well, like, from just not even knowing all of that stuff, just from, like, the little overview that JT gave us the other day, Mm. I immediately thought it was the dad. Like, he's so, like you said, he's so into eugenics and the perfect specimen, and the minute he told me, or told the class that his son had these health issues, I'm like, oh, duh, fucking red flag. And then the the whole... What he said, the um, coincidences or whatever, or the one-offs that they were not supposed to be there... This is, like, the only night they mm-hmm. were staying at that house. Like, who else would have known that? Nah. Nah, bro. You did it. Especially because later we see him having children with other women. And he swore those, like, those women, like, the, the kids had to do DNA tests, like, after Lindbergh died to be like, no, we're Lindbergh's kids. Yeah. We weren't allowed to say anything. Holy shit. It's just insanity. And it's horrible because... I think it really was an accident that he died. Yeah. But it was two miles from his house where it was found. So I wonder that maid, mm-hmm. 
she probably knew something and maybe she was the one that was supposed to take over care of the baby and just make make it like the baby was her own, perhaps. Like, well, he wanted to get single, rid of the baby. Well, if she was a single woman, she couldn't do that. But, like, mm. even if they, say, were taking him to an orphanage or something like that. Yeah. Say something happened along the way, like, and someone got too rough or he, like, they were trying to sneak him out while, like, they everyone else was downstairs so no one would see him and mm-hmm. the ladder broke. Yeah. That still doesn't look great. No. Like, if they leave him in the yard, like, that doesn't look great. So if he's missing, yeah, it brings a lot more sympathy. And they just happened to find a scapegoat. Jesus. Oh, that's stressful. <laughs> so do you want to do some plug-in? Oh, shit, we're done. Yeah, well, this is it. You for, oh. the, baby's, the baby's done. That's, like, the main theory is that Lindbergh killed his own kid. Yeah, I really, 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 really think it was the dad. Like, he, he orchestrated this entire thing. He is an asshole of history. And he, yeah, nothing ever happened to him, right? He was just, like, lived his life oh. normal, right? Yep. Him and his wife continued on. He continued to have his secret affairs, fathering more children. Were they perfect specimens? I think so, actually. Yeah, I think they were healthy. So maybe, like, you know, genetics is, are weird. Yeah. And who knows? And also, like, the 50s was completely different than, like, the 1930s for having kids, like, yeah. just health-wise. So it could have been that, too. Fuck me. So who knows? It's a rough one. Yeah, it's it's rough because uh, an innocent child got killed. Right. But it also shows you a lot about our culture. One, that we don't change. We do, like, just reflect on these dark periods of history. We do have that crowd mentality of, you did something wrong. We're going to shame you. I think it's gotten worse with the internet internet age. But uh, on top of that, this idea of children and all of that has mm. changed. I think for the better, where we're more like, no, our child may not be perfect, but it's our child. Right. It's It's more accepting, which is a dumb word to have to say about your child. Regardless, you know, like, Mm -hmm. everybody's different. Everybody's born differently. It doesn't mean that, that, you know, oh, that's a throwaway kid. You know what I mean? It's just, I do like how it's evolved in that way. We don't make kids disappear to go to the asylum or some relative out in the country anymore. Yeah. Which probably was another option. But, I mean, Lindbergh still is a garbage person. 100%. Not just because he's a Nazi, because he was cheating on his wife to make perfect children. That is just weird. Yeah. Okay. Ready to to plug some things? Oh, all the things. Um, Which one of the four do you want to go start with? Uh, Nature versus narcissism, true crime, comedy, dark humor, cussing, fun stuff. Um, We cover serial killers mostly, but we also, with season two, cover regular murderers. Mm -hmm. That's a weird term, regular murderers. Um, (laughs) One-offs. Yeah, exactly. Ones that don't necessarily kill three or more people. Um, Status pending. Uh, it is an investigative true crime podcast. We look at unsolved, unresolved, still open cases, cold cases, stuff like that. We talk with the family members, um, sometimes private investigators, authors, mm. um, psychotherapists, all of the peoples. Super fun. Super interesting. Um, Ohio 88 is not fully in swing yet, but it's going to focus on notorious criminals from the 88 counties in Ohio, which I realized Ohio has so many fucking counties compared to other states. Mm -hmm. I want to say, I can't remember which one it was. I want to say Rhode Island or Delaware. One of those actually only has like six counties. So compared to 88, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. We have weird shaped ones. Yeah. It's super weird. Um, And then... Coast to Ghost, it's literally, don't fucking go and review it bad, okay, guys? It's literally just sitting around drinking and talking shit about ghosts and stuff. It's super fun. We just do it for fun. We're not doing it to make money or 
please anyone but ourselves. But you can listen because it's fun. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't love talking shit about ghosts? I love it. I love it. So fun. Yeah. So next week, we're going to have another returning person coming on. Tell me. I'll tell you more off. Off. Mic. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. She tried for you guys. She tried really hard. Um, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. Bye. <laughs> bye. A suspicious suicide. A 54 year old cold case. A 17-year-old girl who disappeared and whose stepfather was just released from jail. A stabbing at a college party that challenged social and political boundaries. A false confession that nearly landed a standout college football player in jail for the rest of his life. These are the cases we cover on Status Pending, a monthly three-part look into cases which are open, unresolved, or prematurely closed. We bring voices of the victims, their families, and others with expert knowledge of the cases we cover with the hopes that continuing to shine light on the questions surrounding these cases might one day bring closure. Join us every month for a new chapter in our podcast. Subscribe to Status Pending wherever you listen. For more information, including ways to contact us about future cases you think we should cover, visit statuspending.podbean.com. sick of the dark and depressing news that floods our timelines and airwaves? Are you looking for entertaining news stories that will make you laugh? Maybe a few upbeat and inspiring news stories. We We are are the the podcast podcast for you. you. I'm Greg. And I'm Diana. And we are the hosts of the Podful of Sunshine podcast. Every week we bring you the funniest, craziest, off-the-wall news stories to come out of Florida. But Florida isn't the only place where crazy lives. We bring you the crazy news stories from all around the world. Join us every Monday as we review the crazy news stories of the week. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, basically any major podcast platform. Hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And tell a friend. We're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at domestic podcasts and our instagram is at the cult of domesticity we also have podcast merch at threadless uh as well if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation we have a paypal tip jar and a patreon which has some pretty great perks any topic suggestions feel free to email us at domesticpodcasts at gmail.com remember to stay domestic and cult free (laughs) 